The Water Cooler is a live storytelling event held monthly at Bats Theatre in Wellington. Our theme for this episode is I Woke Up Like This. It's important to note that this was told live and the language and themes might not be for everyone. Our storyteller, Nick Bruce Smith, is a stand-up comedian and also a lawyer who had a 2015 New Zealand International Comedy Festival sold-out season and is a wonderful hidden talent. This is his story. Can I get everybody to please put their hands together for Nick Bruce Smith? "'Twas the week before Christmas when all through the house a creature was stirring who most certainly was not a mouse. Back before the turn of the millennia, during the week before the Christmas of 1998, I decided that I could not wait any longer to know what my presents under the tree were. The problem I faced was that there was no way in hell that my mum would let me open my presents early. So at the age of nine, I knew that I had to devise a plan that was so cunning, so sneaky, so ingenious that I could find out what my presents were and yet appear to open them on Christmas Day with blissful ignorance as to what lay below the paper. So it came to pass on the night of 20 December 1998 that this child was not nestled or snug in his bed as he had visions of grandeur dancing in his head. Although it may seem obvious as to why a nine-year-old boy would want to preempt Christmas festivities, I should probably begin by providing some context for my decision to take matters into my own hand. Hands. From an... <laughs> Sometimes just one hand. It depends. <laughs> From an early age, I realised my mum was someone who had Santa's ear and was my direct line of communication to the obese and sweaty white man that I encountered once a year at Johnsonville Moor. Sadly, despite making it clear to my mother what I wanted for Christmas, it appeared that I was stuck in a game of Chinese whispers where my requests were not making it through to Mr. Claus. When I was two years old, I had requested a balloon for Christmas. Not ten balloons, not a hundred balloons, just one single balloon inflated. A humble request by any standard. Yet come the 25th of December 1991, there I sat beneath the Christmas tree balloonless and with my spirit deflated. By the age of four, it still works me. By the age of four and following two years of Christmas disappointments, I came to the conclusion that either A, my mum was an incompetent servant of Santa, or B, my mother was incompetent and Santa didn't exist. I decided to believe in option A. So come the Christmas of 1993, my mum asked what I wanted for Christmas, and I was unequivocally clear. A tiger and some water buffalo to feed the tiger. (laughs) Needless to say, the Christmas of 1993 did not live up to my expectations, humble though they were. (laughs) That same year, in an act of brotherly love, I also took it upon myself to tell my sister what her Christmas present was before Christmas Day. Much like Nelson Mandela in his early years, My actions were misunderstood as being combative rather than recognised as a step towards the empowerment of others. (laughs) It probably didn't help that also around that time I'd taken to blowing out my sister's birthday candles. um, (laughs) Largely because I didn't believe she had the lung capacity to do it itself (laughs) and I didn't want her to be embarrassed in front of her friends. Fast forward to the morning of 21 December 1998, I awoke with a sense of determination to put my plan into action at the first available opportunity. Overnight, I'd formulated what I thought was a simple yet effective plan. All I needed to do was rip off the teeniest bit of wrapping paper on the present in the strategic location, and in doing so, I would find out what the present was without my mother being any the wiser to my cunning ploy. 
I weighed up my options in terms of whether I took a non-discriminate approach to my presence or whether I targeted the most prized gift. In the end, I realized that if my plan was going to be successful, I needed to temper my desire and focus on the only gift that really mattered, the one from my mum. This was in part due to the fact that I'd come to learn that my relatives had zero imagination when it came to presents for me. Following my request back in 1993 for a tiger, they had formed a clear view that the only thing that I liked in the whole world was tigers. <laughs> and therefore all presents, birthday, Christmas or otherwise, needed to be tiger related. <laughs> I say with some disdain that this is a trend that has continued to this very day. Each year without fail, some aunt or uncle still believes that the one thing that is missing in my life is some tiger-related paraphernalia. Although their creativity for tiger-related goods has narrowed since 2006 to that of an annual tiger calendar. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I do love tigers. I think it's more that I haven't had a use for a calendar, let alone a tiger calendar, since the invention of the smartphone. <laughs> Consequently, I have a stash of unopened tiger calendars hidden beneath my bed, that if discovered by a stranger would have them questioning whether my love for tigers was simply something platonic. <laughs> it didn't take me long to find my mum's present for me under the tree. It was a medium-sized, rectangular, and firm gift. I didn't know how long I would have alone under the tree, so I tore off the bottom corner of the parcel, adrenaline rushing through my body, but I was immediately disappointed as my small tear in the wrapping had not provided me with the information I so desired. I retreated. I would need to regroup and attack again at a later time. That night in bed, I was restless. I was certain my plan was the right one, but I thought that I would be able to tell straight away what my present was. Unfortunately, this hadn't been the first time that year that a plan of mine had gone awry without understanding why. Earlier that year, I'd found a small box of what appeared to be large, elongated shaped cotton buds attached to a piece of string, each individually wrapped in plastic, <laughs> that had caught my eye while being in the bathroom one day. I took the opportunity to grab them and try to figure out what they were. Naturally, I took them to school to show my friends. <laughs> and we spent a memorable lunchtime running around, swinging them on their string, pretending we were helicopters, <laughs> and hitting each other with them. <laughs> our lunchtime was cut short as one of our teachers abruptly stopped us playing, <laughs> confiscated these curious items, and proceeded to question us with vigour about why we had them and what we were doing with them. At the time, this is entirely true, I had no idea why she had an issue with what appeared to me to be something completely harmless. In fact, I distinctly remember saying to her, have you tried using one before, miss? <laughs> I can still see the look of pure anger and embarrassment that consumed her face as I made that comment. Needless to say, I never brought any more of these curious items to school. And it was not until Form 1 in a health education class that I'd learned that I in fact brought a box of tampons to my primary school and dished them out like candy to my mates. <laughs> Oddly during the part of the health class where they dropped the tampon in the glass of water, a part of me was disappointed. I hadn't known that at the time, <laughs> as my friends would have been loads impressed. <laughs> as the week leading to the 25th of December wore on, I took every opportunity to tear off another small part of wrapping paper in the hope that I'd finally know what lay inside yet I was still none the wiser as to what the present actually was. I found myself, due to the amount I'd actually unwrapped, needing to hide the present underneath other presents so my mum and sister would not be aware of my efforts. At this point, it started to dawn on me that I might have gone too far and that at any moment I could be exposed and Christmas cancelled. 
Around this time, I was also a massive fan of the Beatles. And as my anxiety built, I found myself roaming the house humming the song Yesterday by the Beatles. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to say, oh, I believe in yesterday. It was as if Paul McCartney saw into my soul. The words he sung resonated with the inner torment I was going through. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. In the coming months, I'll be shocked to learn the Beatles were not still a band. <laughs> and in fact, one of the Beatles was dead. When I learned this startling truth, deep down I hoped, in a completely unironic way, it was Ringo that was the deceased Beatle. Oh. It's true. I was gravely disappointed. As Christmas Eve drew near, drew near, I knew that it was too far, I knew I was too far committed to pull out now. In a feverish last ditch effort, I found myself tearing more and more of the wrapping away until I realized I had unwrapped the entire present. <laughs> to be fair, the present was glorious. It was amazing. And after years of disappointment, my mum had finally delivered. However, I had gone too far, and there was no way I could disguise what I had done. <laughs> and so at the age of nine, I found myself on Christmas Eve sneaking out of bed to rewrap my own gift. <laughs> Christmas Day itself has always been a big deal for me. My parents are divorced um, when I was really young, which meant that I became accustomed to having two Christmases on Christmas Day. Christmas with my dad's side of the family in the morning and Christmas with my mum's side of the family in the afternoon. The consequence of this was that during my adolescent years, I became a bit of a propaganda machine for divorce. As I would regularly... <laughs> as I would regularly advocate to my classmates the benefit of encouraging their parents to get divorced, <laughs> tell them to pretend that their dad was seeing another woman, <laughs> and no argument was more compelling than the concept of having two Christmases where your separate appearances, parents competed for your love and affection through the provisions of gifts. <laughs> the occasional comment when at friends' houses, what is he doing here, also helped. So I woke on Christmas Day in 1998 with a sense of adrenaline-fueled nervous excitement. This was going to be my Christmas. And it was. My fears of being caught were never realised. As the day sailed through without any comment from my mum as to the changing wrapping paper on her gift to me, I had pulled it off, and for the entire Christmas Day I was untouchable. To be honest, most of the Christmas Day is a blur, people with moments of vividly clear memories. What I remember most from the day is my granddad, or papa as I called him. I remember waiting to tell him so much, wanting to tell him so much about how I pulled off my elaborate plan with the present, but I never did. Not because I was afraid he might not approve, but because when I'd unwrapped it in the morning, he'd given me this knowing look and wink, as if he knew it was to be our little secret the whole time. I think every child is a hero growing up who they idolise beyond words, and for me that was my granddad. He always had the funniest stories, the wittiest sayings, and the most sage advice. He was the kindest and most caring human being I'd ever met principled but pragmatic. On the 7th of July 2001, my granddad would pass away after a long battle with lung cancer. But on the 25th of December 1998, I lived in blissful ignorance of that fact. He was there, and in that moment he would always be there. I remember his eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry, his cheeks like roses from drinking the sherry. And within the blink of an eye, the day came and went, the most perfect Christmas ever a child could have spent. But I heard my grandpa exclaim as his Toyota Corolla drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, 
and to all a good night. Thank you. Thank you so much to Nick for sharing his story with us. Our storyteller, Jesse Moons, is a neuroscientist lawyer with a zoom lens on the image of human behaviour and a way of explaining things like no one I've ever met. Here is her story. So if I could get everyone to please put their hands together for Jesse Moons. So my story is called Two Speed or Thoughts I Had Doing the Crossword. So my relationship with the Dom Post crossword started sometime in the last year. I can't really remember how it happened. It's all a bit of a blur. I just woke up one day, one normal day, and it just happened. (laughs) To clarify, this is not the daily crossword for average Joes who just know a whole bunch of words. Just because it happened fast doesn't mean that I settled. This also isn't the cryptic crossword, which no one can do, because I'm not the janitor from Good Word Hunting. (laughs) My lexical hobby of choice is the two-speed, which is half normal, half cryptic, which is the ideal match for me. It's nothing fancy, because I'm just your everyday kind of (laughs) know-it-all. So maybe I should explain how I get down when I do the encross and down. And yeah, I... uh, And I didn't rhyme down with down because this is my story and I will do what I want. (laughs) So I don't get the paper and flip carefully through the pages absorbing the print journalism. I read the paper online like everyone else. I I buy the paper just for the crossword. I flip straight to A23 because I know that's where the magic happens. (laughs) I get the scissors and I carefully cut the two speed out. None of that free-ripping stuff that I've seen you people do, where you fold the paper to make a line, then rip it, like I'm some kind of oafish hooligan. (laughs) I also sometimes cut out the regular daily one, because even Usain Bolt has to go for a walk sometimes. (laughs) After, After carefully cutting out the crossword, I stick it to this bit of leftover plywood that I somehow managed to find after putting together my Kmart bookshelf, even though the instructions were really clear that there was to be no bits left over. And then I save my crossword for the right time. I don't wake up and do the crossword because mornings are not for crosswords. That is unnatural. Seriously, St. Julius Crossword, inventor of the crossword, would turn in his grave if he found out people were doing crosswords in the morning like savages. (laughs) Mornings are not crossword time. They are for getting dressed and complaining about going to work. (laughs) If I'm feeling particularly effervescent, I will drag myself to my gym, which looks suspiciously like the Hunger Games training facility. For those of you who are unfamiliar with The Hunger Games, it's a teen fiction novel in which 12 children from the poverty-stricken areas of a city are made to fight to the death for the entertainment of the wealthy. And this broadcast on live television, kind of like Big Brother, but with a bit more in-your-face live murder. (laughs) It's a bestseller. So if you've seen my gym, it truly does look like the high-tech training facility in The Hunger Games. The place is riddled with Reebok-sponsored personal trainers, crazy science fiction equipment, and body-positive branding. Honestly, everything you could ever need to feel supported in your quest to slay 11 other teenagers in your personal victory. (laughs) All the staff there are just out of their minds on endorphins and B12 shots. And the personal trainers are constantly asking me to do a different kind of two two across and three down that I'm used to. Which is a crossword reference, not innuendo. 
Because do you know what are strange bedfellows? Dating and crosswords. Explanation to follow. <laughs> the prologue to my charming anecdote asks you as the audience to firstly understand that my workplace is the perfect marriage of all those American office television sitcoms. One of the characters in my real-life version of this is Carol, or as I started to call her, bloody hell Carol, and you will start to see why. During an extremely busy day at work when we were particularly low on staff, there was a one-day-only handbag sale at work. Obviously, this was the top of everyone's agenda, men and women alike. Meetings were cancelled, urgent memos drafted, serious event notifications sent across and down the building. It was just a usual day for me at the government, consuming my fruise balls at my desk and my sugar-free Red Bull, <laughs> minding my own business. And suddenly, a wild Carol appears out of nowhere and gives me a fright. Bloody hell, Carol. Carol had come over to ask me. <laughs> Carol had come over to ask me if I was going to this handbag sale. I said no, because I'm the kind of modern gal that only needs one handbag, for convenience. Carol, <laughs> Carol then asked me, well, if you only have one handbag, what are you going to take on your single dates? To elucidate, Carol is a big fan of the reality show The Bachelor. I know. Bloody hell, Carol. <laughs> For those of you unfamiliar with scripted reality television, it's, one of the, it's a show where a carefully picked hunk picks from a wide variety of Caucasian nines and tens, picks a wife... <laughs> And they all live together, it's like 30 of them, all waiting to see if they survive till the end. It's extremely similar to The Hunger Games, except all the participants actually volunteer, and the murderers kept mainly off screen. <laughs> it's the kind of show that if you watch it, and you hold a $10 note up to your ear, you can actually hear Kate Shepard crying. <laughs> I told Carol... I told Carol that I didn't really go on single dates. Her response was, why don't you book some into your calendar? I spat my half-chewed ball out of my mouth and said, bloody hell, Carol, it really isn't that simple. How will I even go about that? It's not like I can just bring boys to the yard with my milkshake. You know that I'm lactose intolerant. Can't, can't have a milkshake without milk. Boys don't like soy milk. How could you forget about what happened last time? Managed to trick that one boy, came to the yard, took one sip, spit it out, out said, saw you later. <laughs> Don't you remember, Carol? Bloody hell. As a, result of the, as a result of this interaction with bloody hell Carol, I downloaded Tinder when I got home. <laughs> Tinder is this dating app where you upload those few pictures that you have of yourself where you're able to convince yourself and others that you look like Chrissy Teigen, model wife to John Legend, and hashtag goals, <laughs> complete with a fun and flirty tagline and attempt to attract a mate. The best part about Tinder, which they really undersell, is that it allows you to judge others based on their appearance and spelling from the comfort of your own home. After downloading Tinder, I consulted with my sisterhood, also known as my five girl flatmates, over some green tea and chia seeds. The overall opinion was, just be myself. One of my flatmates claims not to have told me this, but this is not her story. <laughs> Not sure if telling me to be myself was the best advice. Let's just dwell on this for a moment. I currently have 20 crosswords cut out, like I'm some kind of word serial killer and clipped to a piece of fake wood, and I keep referring to areas of my life as if I'm in the Hunger Games. Maybe my authentic self was more of a plan B. So I went ahead with Tinder anyway and swiped my way through what can only be described as an oath-pocalypse of hipster beards, tiger pictures, and every spelling... <laughs> 
in every spelling of the word your you could possibly think of. I also came across one entrepreneurial lad who was using it to sell narcotics, and a guy dressed as a clown holding a gun. Swoon, am I right? Makes a gal go weak at the knees at the mere recollection. I actually managed to find a couple of ones who I wouldn't be embarrassed to bring home to the sisterhood. So it goes without saying that I was doing a crossword at the same time. After all the hidden in plain sight mongrel mob tattoos and the use of Y's where there should be eyes, I kind of just needed something to believe in again. <laughs> I was just sitting there on my bed, crossword board on my lap, Tinder in one hand. I could not help but feel like I was two-timing my two-speed. So I ended up getting stuck on a couple of words, and because I'm very good at solving problems that I create for myself, I used the send photo to all function to take a picture of the crossword and clues and send all my waiting suitors. <laughs> I believe the intended purpose of this function is to take pictures of your boobs and send them out. But obviously I was not going to do that. Do you think Helen Clark got to where she was by sending pictures of her boobs to people on Tinder? No. Helen is also not lactose intolerant, so she didn't find herself nursing the same problem as me. <laughs> so I took the pictures, the clues, and I waited for my knight in shining armour. It actually worked. I got some help. Some of the responses were helpful and brief, which was exactly what I wanted. Because I wasn't looking for love on Tinder, I was looking for help with something I loved. Some of my potential paramours were not as supportive. I got a couple of replies like, lols, girl, why are you doing crossword? Which I responded with a swift unmatch, do not pass go, do not volunteer as tribute. One very, very thirsty bay offered to come to my house and help me finish the crossword in my bed at night time. I think this is a misrepresentation on my part, because although it's called the two-speed, I had every intention on completing it alone. Once I carefully explained this to the love-lorn lad, he swiftly unmatched me, without even a cute emoji. Chivalry is dead, ladies. <laughs> so I gave up on Tinder cross-matching. I woke up the next morning no closer to a single date that Carol had told me about. However, something that proved more of an unlockable achievement was my old work-life crossword balance. could easily take my crossword to work although I still needed help for the, with the big words, some of which I swear the crossword editor had made up herself. Like sepulchral, for instance. Allegedly, it means relating to a tomb or internment, and I am certain this word has only been used twice earlier, once in my crossword and once right now. <laughs> I've read The Hunger Games many times, and despite endless opportunities where that word could have been used, it never was. How's that for evidence-based fact? <laughs> So I needed someone from work to help me who was smart enough but also would never offer to come to my house. Not sure if the building I worked in had a janitor or not, I looked at the desks around me for possible crossword helpers and I was very lucky to find Steve, or Shut Up Steve, as it will henceforth be known. Shut Up Steve and I became friends at work, surprisingly, after he told me that I would never achieve my childhood dream job of being All Blacks coach because I was a woman in a team meeting in front of everyone at work. <laughs> Shut up, Steve. <laughs> Steve and I had a good system. I would email him the clues and he would email me back the answers with analysis such as, don't feel bad, your girl brain just has fewer folds. Shut up, Steve. I know that. Have a neuroscience degree. <laughs> the two-speed also comes in handy when my weird 1980s government work computer forces me to take a wellness break. Working away on something extremely critical, my computer force freezes and tells me I need to take a five-minute break. A message pop up, pops up and says, Hi, shut up and be well. You have five minutes to make yourself mentally healthy and get back to work or you'll be fired. <laughs> 
It's perfectly effective because there's nothing more relaxing than force. (laughs) You're probably starting to understand now that I'm not lying when I say a crossword comes first in my life 100% of the time. And my dad is the same. He just gets that deal. And it's genetic. You can believe me because I have a science degree. I once picked up my dad's New Zealand Herald newspaper and he immediately told me not to do the crossword. I said, of course, Dad, I wouldn't do it. I'm not going to do your crossword. But then I totally did his crossword. (laughs) Because that's why I took the newspaper. At 25, I'm running out of ways to lie to my parents. So it wasn't until I set myself up to write this story for the water cooler that I really felt the bond that I had with the two-speed. I woke up each morning with the same plan. Go to the Hunger Games training facility in order to achieve, achieve victory for my district go to work, hang out with Carol and Steve, come home, and each night, sit up my laptop, my notepad, everything I needed to write this story, and every time, without fail, the first thing that would come into my head before I even had a chance to write anything was, oh my God, this is the perfect setup for my crossword. And I would turn to my clipboard, start doing a crossword. And before I knew it, time had run out, it was late, I needed to go to sleep, or worse, I would wake up the next morning with my crossword board nestled against my body, and I had achieved nothing for the story. Not one word. So now that I've finished my story, as a reward, I get to go home and sit down and proceed to do my 20 cut-out crosswords. Thank you. Thanks so much to Jesse for sharing the story with us. Our storyteller is Bob Lalolly, and Bob is a builder-slash-sideshow magician who is also a hot dog connoisseur. This is his story. Can everyone please, please put your hands together for Bob? This is the story I woke up and decided to bring my dream to reality. Uh, Making your dreams become reality is a figure of speech in most cases, but on this day, uh, I literally woke up and decided right there that I wanted to live the dream that, that I had that night. <laughs> Saying that out loud, it uh, probably makes me sound a lot pretty pretentious, like I've just like received seed funding for like, this little motivational app that I'm just chucking out there on an Android application, or that I shop at like More Wilson's exclusively or something, but it's not. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that dude. I'm not that dude. So when Alice asked me to tell the story at the... Um, water cooler, I was like, fucking, yep. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't give it a second, uh, you know, there was no second thought, and uh, when I, you know, she kind of took advantage of me, I a couple of beersies with her cunning ways, and, and man of my word, uh, here I am, telling this story in front of all you people, and millions of people on this podcast that it's going out to, right? <laughs> uh, it's a, until now, it's... Um, it's, it's a bit weird because I've never really had to explain this story to anyone except myself because no one really understands and the only person who ever understood it is me and to be honest I've never really actually fucking understood it myself uh, which is kind of difficult explaining this, it feels like an autobiography but I thought an easy way to write the story would be like to do it if I pretended for a minute that I was just writing a letter to my mum to explain to her where I'd been for the last week. Uh, but that felt a little bit weird because it's, been, it's not 93. So, uh, so, <laughs> so instead, I'm just going to ask you guys, just pretend that, like, I'm Eminem and you guys are Stan. <laughs> um, so, I don't, I don't, it's, it's, it's 2001, but that's how we do it, all right? And so you, I'm just writing this crazy letter to... You guys, and then we got Dido in the background, like 
crying about how cold her tea is. So just run, run with this, right? Run with it. Here we go. Dear Slim, I wrote you, but you still don't call me. I left my cell, my pager, and my phone at the bottom. It's me, Bob, in case you've forgotten. You might be wondering where I've been. So I'll start from the beginning. Two weeks ago, I had this dream. I was riding an elephant for my birthday. I was dreaming it was my birthday, and it was riding this elephant. It was amazing. It was the most euphoric experience I have ever had. I was in this jungle with an elephant. It changed my life. I could see the future. I could see everything. Everything. No, nothing was a matter. I was on this elephant. Everything was fine. <laughs> I woke up after this dream. I was absolutely fixated on this memory. I needed to be on this elephant. I was obsessed with the idea of being on this fucking elephant, and I didn't care what I had to do, but I needed to be on this elephant. Slim, you've always known me to be a doer. I marched to the beat of my own drummer, and that's exactly what I did. I marched straight down to Star Travel, Cuba Street. There was a girl working behind the desk. She's a baby. Uh, now that I record, oh, I missed that opportunity with her. But anyway, I walked in and I said to her, Crystal! She's written a little name to her, Crystal. I don't care what I have to do to make this happen, but on the 21st of August, I have to be on an elephant. Just book me the closest place to where the elephants are. Just take me to the elephants. So not really sure where we're going, but I walked out of there and we had flights to Bangkok. Return flights to Bangkok. That's the most adult thing I did that day was get a return ticket. So, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> within, 48, uh, within 48 hours, I was on a plane. I didn't text anyone. I didn't tell anyone. I, it was mania. I just, it, the aeroplane food, that was pretty, that was good. <laughs> so, I arrived in Bangkok. I got off the plane. And I found a hotel and I checked in. Just to... Like two days ago, I was in bed in my house in New Zealand, and now I'm in Bangkok by myself. <laughs> uh, and I, I was committed to this. There was no backing out. There was no chance of doubting any decisions or even worse to stop where the, where the fuck am I? What am I doing? I was in Bangkok. So, so I went for a walk, and obviously, and anyone that's been to Bangkok, you can't go a couple of metres without being in a bar. <laughs> so I found myself in a bar and I met a friend of mine, Chang. So I just, I sat there with me and Chang, just Bob and Bob, just hanging out, just keep rolling for a couple of hours, just me and Chang. And, uh, and then I woke up in the morning in a teepee. <laughs> in the middle of Bangkok, I was in a teepee. I looked around, how did, how did, this, how did this happen? Like, am I in a rainforest? Are there tigers? <laughs> Why is there an ironing board? I quickly realised I'm not in a teepee in a rainforest. I had made this fort myself. <laughs> <laughs> With a couple of beds together and the ironing board holding the sheets up. The TV was inside, and it was just playing rainforest documentaries. <laughs> but I thought, oh, that's all right, man. Like any other 26-year-old would do in the world, just make a fort in Bangkok. So it was, I'd, I had Cocoa Pops it was for breakfast. After that, I went down to the hotel travel agent to book flights to Koh Samui, and this, this was my golden ticket to, to live my dream. I arrived, I arrived in Koh Samui that weekend, uh, that afternoon, sorry. 
Things were going along absolutely normal and nice for a change. Uh, I went out for dinner and I, uh, I met another Chang. Um, <laughs> it, it, I developed a weird kind of relationship with Chang at this point. Like, it was kind of like a love-hate relationship. And I was quite aware by that time that Chang, be it like the kind of inconsistently ranges from like 4 to 18% alcohol. So uh, I was uh, pretty sure to pace myself because uh, I had an elephant to find. Uh, the next morning, I woke up tightly made in a bed. I was wearing a Bart Simpson mask and had purchased the biggest bag of fireworks you'd ever seen. <laughs> Slight improvement from the night before, but let's be honest, I was actually just acting like Tom Hanks when he was in Big and just went like balls deep into all the apartment stores and just bought what he wanted. <laughs> right? So I went... <laughs> I went for a walk on the beach and uh, I found myself killing a couple of hours, getting really competitive playing Connect Four with a, an eight-year-old. Um, <laughs> fuck, Connect Four is so rigged. It's like grids and I don't do grids, it's so many grids. <sighs> I also ended up spending a thousand baht on necklaces. I think nothing cooler than a 26-year-old white dude walking around with like shell necklaces. Around. <laughs> Uh, so I kept, I kept adventuring and uh, I ate some weird shit and I got uh, measured up for suits and I got countless massages, <laughs> offers for massages. Uh, I, finally found, I finally found a stall selling tickets to the wildlife reserve. It had happened. I thought, slim, slim. This is it, slim. My dream, just metres within reach. So I held my necklaces close to my chest and just did that spastic, like, jandal you know, run towards it. And I... Uh, got these tickets. I was like, this is it. This is happening tomorrow. Tomorrow is my dream, literally. This is why I'm here. That night I stayed in. I needed to make sure nothing weird happened. So at this point, I was quite terrified of what Chang was capable of when he's left alone with me. I woke up and it was, it was my birthday. I thought, today's my day. I looked around, there was like no weird, there was no ironing board, there were no teepees. There was, I didn't have a mask on my face, there were no fireworks, they hadn't exploded. Um, I'd done it. I thought, Bob, you got this, man, you can be an adult if you put your mind to it. So, <laughs> so I went to reception and I got a scooter. Uh, and then I drove off into the mists uh, to get some hot dogs and it was a great day. <laughs> it was a great day. Uh, it, was, it was a little early, so nothing was really open. Um, so I, I, I parked my little scoot up and uh, went for a walk, walk around the beach and just killed some time for a couple of hours. And uh, then I came back. Uh, and it was no longer an empty street. Like, there were scooters fucking everywhere. Like, there were scooters. Where's my scooter? Like, I hadn't even given a second thought what my scooter looked like, what colour it was, what model it was. I didn't know anything, man. I just parked a simple scooter there. I come back. I was like, oh, I'm in the shit. Oh, I'm in the shit. Oh, I just gone with the flow. So it was getting late, and I had, I had to go to this, catch my elephant, and I just knew, I knew what I had to do. And right at that point, I was like, shit, I wish I had my Bart Simpson mask, because I knew what I had to do. So I did. I picked my key up. And I walked to every fucking scooter and put that key in and turned it. There were thousands, right? Put the key in, didn't turn. Put the key in. Came to one scooter, 101. I crossed, I prayed to Buddha, I put that key in and that bitch started. 
I pushed that. I took off. People were looking at me thinking I'm stealing their shit. I just rode off like, yes, I'm not getting murdered. So, heading back to my hotel, I got lost. I took a turn. And I took another turn. And I took another turn. And I had no idea where I was. So I just hooned it. I just took it, man. I just felt like you, rabbit. Rabbit, like at the end of eight mile, I just took off, man. <laughs> and then I found some familiar buildings. And I made my way back. Finally got there. I pulled into my hotel. And the, um, the, the ride from the, from the wildlife park was there waiting for me. And it was a taxi. Well, they call it a taxi, but it was just a ute with a little gazebo on the back. I was like, there it is, that's me. I did a little skid when I came in, just thinking it was quite cool. <laughs> it, wasn't, it, was, it was probably a lot more dramatic than, in my head than it was at the time. But, okay, I'm, I'm telling a story here. So after a bumpy ride for about 30 minutes, I pulled up into the wildlife reserve. And all I could see were elephants. There was just a hill full of elephants. And I just felt like Sam Neill when he's flying into Jurassic Park and just seeing all that. So I was like, wow. I've made this. Uh, I got some bananas for the elephant. <laughs> it was 1.30 p.m. on the 21st of August, 2013. And I rode an elephant on my birthday, just like my dream. I'd never done this before, anything like it, like waking up and just going, take me where you want, Crystal. <laughs> I planked that elephant. I planked the head of that elephant. Remember planking, Slim? <laughs> it was cool in 2013, but unfortunately it's probably not anymore, but I've got memories from my kids, maybe, from my grandkids. Maybe it will come back. Maybe. I felt like I got on this elephant and I felt like on top of the world. When I hopped on this elephant, I just went, I've lived my dreams. Here I am, doing it. It was good. Gave it a couple of bananas, had one myself. <laughs> After 10 minutes of being on this elephant, it was fucking bulls boring, man. This was so <laughs> shit. This was so... <laughs> Elephants are so slow. Do you know how slow those elephants are? <laughs> I signed up for a whole hour. And I was 10 minutes into it. I still had 50 minutes to go back, and I was fucking bored. This was not part of the dream, Slim. I wasn't supposed to be extremely bored. The dream was euphoric. It was the greatest experience of my time. I'm in this dream, and I never want to get off this elephant. This is why I ended up here. I've flown thousands of miles, and now I'm doing it, and I'm... Hate it. <laughs> this was actually worse than this time I was in Sydney and I was walking down the street and there was a sign that said, Hug a koala for $25 for 15 minutes. <laughs> so I did. I paid the $25. They put me in a room and bought this koala in and just gave me the koala. Just me and this koala hugging for 15 minutes. <laughs> for $25. <laughs> Set a cuddle. Ah, oh, anyway. 
I had to ride around on this elephant for another 50 minutes, and it was, oh, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't escape this nightmare that I had. <laughs> I, I was in my own nightmare right now. And so the uh, elephant ride was finally over. Um, and after the biggest anti-climax of my life, <laughs> all I wanted to do was hang out with Chang. So I did. Me and Chang, we got extremely drunk. Um, and I went out, and it was my birthday night still, so I went out and um, I met up with some other solo travellers and I convinced them to join my scooter gang. <laughs> uh, and we spent another four days just riding around Koh Samui in V formation with our little scooters. And... <laughs> yeah. So I had, a, I had a couple of days left, so I booked some tickets to uh, Copenhagen. And... Uh, for a half moon party, and I had to get there by ferry, and it was uh, basically the most overloaded illegal ferry you'd probably ever see. It, well, I was convinced I was going to refugee camp, um, and I was going to die. It was, uh, it was, it was the most uh, like terrifying boat ride of my life. Uh, it was actually worse than that time that I lived in Evans Bay, uh, down on the waterfront, <laughs> and um, and I woke up with this uncontrollable because like just needed to go fishing and um and I, I didn't know anyone that had a boat i don't have a boat so i rang um rob lang and james wood and i was like dude we, we gotta get, we get we got fishing today but we need a boat uh so we uh bought one off trade me and uh it was a like an absolute lemon so we um <laughs> we, we we took off and we went fishing out in the harbour there, and then the biggest southerly of like generations came through, and then the motor blew up, uh, and evidently we, we shipwrecked. Um, so we hit the rocks, uh, and we didn't have an oars or like, those radios or anchor, we had nothing. Um, we, we needed life coaches, that's what we needed, but we didn't. We hit the rocks, uh, we googled Coast Guard, and, uh, and so they, and they came and picked us up. Uh, so they towed us back in, and um, we pulled up, and they got us back into, put the boat on the trailer, and uh, that was all good. We got a telling off, and then as we're driving off, the wheel on the trailer fell off, and we jackknifed the main road. Uh, and then the police turned up, and we nearly died that day, and all they could do was give us a ticket for no warrant of fitness. Anyway, I digress. So I finally made it to the half moon party, and uh, I don't know if anyone's been to a half moon or full moon party. They, it's all face paint you and body paint you, uh, fluoro and stuff. But I said I wanted to be painted as Batman, so <laughs> pretty much painted me black. Uh, so the night was going good until uh, <laughs> I bumped into the Joker, and we had a little. How are you? And then, uh, and it was good. And then I had a milkshake, which was a lot stronger than the Chang's. But everyone started getting really, really friendly after that. Uh, kind of like that time when I was in Christchurch, um, and I went to a toga party. But I didn't wear a sheet. I went in an electric blanket, and I plugged myself in, in the corner and just like got real warm. And everyone come and cuddled me because it was the middle of winter and. That's probably how the koala felt. <laughs> <sighs> so, 
so I woke up the next day and decided to have one more crack at hiring a scooter. Uh, and within a minute, uh, sorry, within a little bit, I was driving around, and then a monsoon came in. Uh, so I parked up and I went to a bar. Uh, Chang was there. <laughs> a couple of hours he was there. And uh, not one to learn my lesson, I woke up in the morning and I didn't have my scooter. But this time I remembered I'd parked it under a coconut tree. Uh, there's quite a few coconut trees over in Thailand, if you've been there. <laughs> so I finally got there, walking around with a Chang over, um, and I found my scooter, and there I am, Slim. I'm back here now, and I'm all good. Um, and you will be proud of me, because I did come away with a uh, PhD in animal behaviour, CrossFit slash small business management, which I actually got off the side of the street. Um, <laughs> And I sponsored a little kid's dream to go to the Olympics to play Connect Four, and I've got all my organs still. <laughs> so, yours, Sam. Bob. Thanks so much to Bob for sharing his story with us. Our storyteller is Abby Howells. She's an improviser, performer, writer and comedian and also the winner of the 2015 New Zealand International Comedy Festival Best Newcomer Award. This is her story. Could I please get everyone like, to put their hands together for Abby Howells? Hello everyone. So this story ends with me being handed a glove that a woman had just shat in and me saying, thank you. And this story, um, <laughs> this story begins when I was a kid because from a very early age, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was gonna be a performer and I had it all mapped out. As soon as I turned 18, I was going to move to London to go to musical theatre school. I would go there for three years. As soon as I'm finished, I would instantly be cast in the West End production of Chicago. It's a revival. I'm playing Velma Cully. Oh, who's playing Billy Flynn? It's Clay Aiken. <laughs> we have mad chemistry. He loves the way I sing all that jazz. And then we get married, and I have a long and successful career in musical theatre, transitioning seamlessly into the world of film. <laughs> and that was my plan, and I was very determined about it, so any, like, knock or rejection to this plan would just put me into a tailspin. I could be stressing out, like, thinking, you know, what if I don't get into musical theatre school? What if I don't make it? You know, what if, who, who will I be? And I wanted this so bad because I loved performing. Like any opportunity I could get, like I re regaled my classmates at camp with my impressions. And I had two impressions. And the first one was Jerry Seinfeld. And the second one was Macy Gray. And that was it. <laughs> and the Jerry Seinfeld didn't go so well because it was like about the difference between men and women. Like, um, oh. <laughs> Man, women, eh? They um, pour boiling hot wax on their legs and then they rip the hair out by the root and still be afraid of a spider. <laughs> and this, this was lost on nine-year-olds. <laughs> they didn't get it. 
And I remember memorizing the Sorting Hat song and singing it for my class. And um, when I was thinking about this, I remember that another kid, was after I sang it, for the class, to their enjoyment, I assume. Um, uh, he put up his hand, he's like, I like to sing the Sorting Hat song. And our teacher was like, oh, I guess. And then he went, Sorting Hat, na, 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 Sorting Hat. Which is so funny. That kid was like nine. <laughs> what is he doing now? Probably in jail. But, um, yeah. I loved performing, I loved it, and I had this dream to be in musical theatre. And this dream kind of kept me going through tough times, you know, through um, any rejection or being a massive dork at high school, you know, no matter what happened, it would be okay. Like, I'd go to my room, I'd listen to my musicals, and I would just know that one day I was going to be on the stage and it was all going to be fine. And obviously that didn't happen. I didn't go to London when I was 18. I stayed in Dunedin and I studied theatre there. And that was great. I got to do theatre every single day. That was wonderful. And people ask you, what do you do? And I'd say, I do, I study theatre. And they're like, that's great. And then, um, <laughs> and then I moved to Wellington to do um, a master's in creative writing. And I loved it. I got to write every day. And people were like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm doing a master's in creative writing. And they're like, oh, that's great. I'm like, yeah. It's really good. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and um, through my whole life, I always managed to like float along and never really get a proper job. Like I always think, oh, I'm probably gonna have to get a proper job. And then I'd get like a phone call or an email, being like, hey, do you want to do this thing? And I'd manage to like float along for a little bit longer and never get one. And so last year, I finished my degree and. I got a phone call and uh, floated along for a little while, and then nothing really on the horizon. Uh, and I thought, oh, I should probably get a proper job. And I had to, because nothing came up. Nothing saved me. <laughs> um, so I decided to get the most glamorous job I could find, which was being an administration person at a pathology clinic. <laughs> So a pathology clinic is like where you get blood tests done and they analyse your urine and faeces. So if it excretes from you, we'll take it. <laughs> That's not their motto. <laughs> but it should be. Um, so, yeah, and... It's a dumb job, it's not really what I want to do. I say, do you have a form, like 50 times a day? Um, if I had a catchphrase, I don't think it would be that. Um, but the worst thing about it, which I didn't anticipate as being the worst thing, is the fact that I have to wear a uniform. And it's a pretty bad uniform, it's like a tunic and blue pants and a cardigan and shoes I got from the warehouse. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's no possible way to look good in it. You know, even if you were wearing nothing but the tunic, you would still be like, wow, look at that tunic. It's really hard to get past the tunic. <laughs> um, and, yeah, just, um, it's just a very visual reminder of my failure because as soon as you see me you see that I'm not doing what I want to do that I'm wearing a uniform um, and I wake up every day and I dress myself not in the clothes that I want to be wearing and I used to be really ashamed to find like I'd hate people seeing me in my uniform because you know they'd see me and they'd ask oh what are you doing and I'd be like I'm doing administration for pathology clinic and they'd be like oh um, so I wasn't 
And, you know, and, and if people I knew came into work and I remember, like, ducking my head under the desk to avoid someone because I was so ashamed, like, that I wasn't doing what I really wanted to do. And the job is dumb. It's a dumb job. I know so much stuff now that I wish I didn't know. Like... <laughs> Like, did you know, did you know that semen, semen's a hot ticket, you got to process that real fast. Like, um, <laughs> one hour for post-vasectomy, two hours for fertility. So, um, yeah, the semen comes in, you got to ring this bell and be like, it's semen. <laughs> There's semen here in the room. <laughs> And because of the time frame, it, it means, unfortunately, when people drop it off, you have to ask, and what time was this collected? <laughs> and sometimes, you know, people are like, uh, but sometimes they look you to get in the eyes and say, 10 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> And because my job has an element of customer service, it's horrible. And, <laughs> and there are customers, and they're very rude. And I'm, I'm not very tough, I'm pretty sensitive, so if someone's rude to me, as they are, I've been called like idiot and stupid, people just assume I'm stupid because of the way I present myself. <laughs> and, um, and I just get really upset by it, and I can't stop thinking about it for days, you know, like what I, I wish I could have said, or that it seems so unfair that people that are rude to people are allowed to live without justice. But... <laughs> but I have a small sense of justice, which is um, anyone who's, like, spectacularly rude to me or a repeat offender, or this guy who I work with one time went like this. Is that haircut expensive? <laughs> to me, make it onto the list, which is like this envelope that I keep in my desk, and then I write their name on it, and it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> Nothing has happened, but it kind of makes me feel better. But I just dread... <laughs> I dread someone finding it because it looks so creepy because there's this envelope that has the list written on it and then, like, their colleagues' names <laughs> with, like, some of them have little notes so they're, like, the most despicable one <laughs> and, and possible redemption. I'm forgiving. I'm forgiving. One person has made it off the list, so I'm merciful. <laughs> <laughs> But if anyone found it, it would only cement my reputation as the office weirdo, which I already have. Like, I just can't seem to pitch the social situations quite right. Like, I always get it wrong. And um, someone, like, came up to me one time and said, I heard that you're a comedian. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm doing a show in the comedy festival. And, um, and then she said, I never would have said that. <laughs> just looked off. And now I've become obsessed with like her thinking that I'm funny, so that she'll be like, oh, of course, I see it now. You're a modern Lucille Ball. But um, it's just like, <laughs> it's just like swings and misses. Like the other day, she was like, hey, can you check this form? It's for Mrs. Pac Man. And I was like, oh, Mrs. Pac Man. 
Boy, I bet when her husband gets home, she's like, oh, stop chasing ghosts. <laughs> that was like complete swing and a miss. Cause it was dumb because like Pac-Man doesn't, he runs away from ghosts more than he chases them. It was stupid, stupid. <laughs> but like, I did have a minor success the other day because there's this receptionist and she's a South African woman and she always calls me Mary Poppins. And, um, <clears throat> and one time someone was like, why do you always call her Mary Poppins? And she's like, I don't know, I just think she looks like Mary Poppins. And I was like... Um, <laughs> And then they said the best thing I've ever said at work, which is, well, I am practically perfect in every way. <laughs> and she went, oh, good one, Mary Poppins. <laughs> um, which brings me to the glove incident. Um, glove gate. Um, so I was sitting on reception, and obviously we take feces sample. It's a wonderful world that I'm a part of now. And um, this woman couldn't get it in a container. So she shat in a glove and, um, and handed it to me. Um, and that was sort of like the low point because that was just so far from what I dreamed of doing when I was a kid. I never thought that this would ever be a part of my, <laughs> my world and my life. And if uh, young Abby could see herself, she would be so very disappointed. Um, but it's really not that bad. It's kind of like the dumb job phase of my life, which is fine. I have a job, which is great. And in telling the story, I kind of wish that I had a happy ending so I could say, like, and then I threw my letter of resignation on the desk and said, so long, everyone, I've been cast as the first female phantom of the opera. I must go. Goodbye. Um, but that's not true. I have to go to work tomorrow. I wake up tomorrow, and I put on my uniform, and I go to work. Um, but it ain't that bad. And I think uh, if this story had a moral, it would be that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes life hands you a shitty glove and you just have to say, do you have a form for that? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much to Abby for sharing her story with us. If you've got a great story to tell or would like to hear any of our previous episodes, visit us at thewatercooler.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. This episode was produced by Alice Bryan, that's me. And the live show is also hosted by stand-up comedian Alice Bryan, who is also me. So make sure you get tickets to the live show to come and see the magic happen. The show would also not be possible without the founder and director, Sarah Finnegan-Walsh. A special thanks to Bats Theatre and The Wireless for their continued support. This podcast was brought to you by New Zealand On Air. Join us again next week for more stories from The Water Cooler.